more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Good evening. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for an extra episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Grace Dietzler. And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at Oregon State and interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are lucky to be joined by Rue Dickey, who is a 2019 graduate of the Microbiology and Communications Departments at Oregon State University. Welcome, Rue. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so this week is um, a little different. As you may have heard, Rue uh, is a a graduate of OSU, um, but we have Rue on the show for a very special uh, interview today. A little bit of sad wrapped in happy. And Rue, you've done an amazing job of seeing some really unfortunate things happening, but stepping up to the plate as an individual. And I really want to talk about that because we as individual people feel like we often can't do so much. So first, you want to start out with, you know, um, what kind of got you on this on this path to make a game that has sold over $400,000 for essentially a a fundraiser. Yeah, um, I wanted to start uh, by saying that uh, it's a bundle of games, so it's not like one game. Right. Uh, There are like 500 or so in the bundle. But uh, so when the... um, When Texas did their... The Texas governor made his announcement with the attorney general, uh, like essentially ordering the child protective services in Texas to begin persecuting um, families of trans people for allowing their children to socially transition or medically transition um, and like essentially defined letting your child live their life as child abuse. Um, It was really scary. Uh, (laughs) Obviously, like uh, I was very uh, like lucky to grow up outside of San Francisco. So my childhood as a trans person was super supportive. Um, But I have a lot of friends who grew up in less supportive areas. And I know from experience and from their experiences what it's like to not have that safety and that security of being able to be yourself. Um, And at first I was like really angry and really upset and couldn't really think of what to do because, you know, I'm not exactly the most wealthy person. And also I live in Oregon, so it's not like I can go out on the streets in Texas and like be out protesting with folks who are there right now and doing very hard work on the ground. Um, and I, uh, I'm an avid tabletop gamer and an avid gamer in general, um, and itch, which is, uh, a platform 
through which you can sell indie games um, over the summer of 2020 had done a bundle for racial justice that um, I think that one made something like five million dollars that it then split between bail funds and uh, black charities across the country. I think there were like 10 or so different charities that they donated things to. Um, and I've been a part of smaller charity bundles that have raised like 10 to 20 grand for different causes during like awareness months and things like that. Um, and so I thought, okay, well, I can't do anything by myself, but if I can get a bunch of folks together to donate their games to this bundle, then whatever money we make from that is more than I as a single person would ever be able to contribute. Um, and so I set up, uh, I talked with, um, a couple of my friends who, uh, are moderators for a BIPOC tabletop group that I'm a part of. Um, and because they had recently done a bundle and I wanted sort of some understanding of how it works from the back end. Uh, so they walked me through the process and then I opened up applications and it was less of a like narrowing down things and a if you applied, you got in because we mm-hmm. wanted as many games as possible to be involved in this project. Um, And I was not expecting the overwhelming number of responses (laughs) that I got. Uh, But at the end of it, we had 493 games from indie designers, as well as about 15 products from three publishing companies that also wanted to partner with us. Um, And then uh, had that go live um, (laughs) on, I think it was March 2nd was when we actually went live with the bundle. And what was your initial goal? Uh, so my initial goal was $1,000 um, with the like uh, month long, it, uh, it ran for a month and I was like, if we can hit a stretch goal of 10000 I will be like flaw like uh, that's not the right word, floored <laughs> and amazed um, if we can get that far. And that's like way more than I could have ever hoped to do. And that was, I mean, I just absolutely <laughs> blown past. So in the first just the first night that it was live yeah you raised over eleven thousand, right yeah so um i went live at about 8 p.m pacific time um and that first thousand dollar goal was like blasted through in 45 minutes um (laughs) and then uh i set a new goal for five thousand dollars after that and then i went to bed because uh i'm an old person and i go to bed at 10 (laughs) (laughs) o'clock um and when i woke up the next morning uh, it was already past $11,000, so it had way gone past that $5,000 goal. Um, and over the course of the next week, I had to raise the goal eight times, I believe. Um, and in the first week, we raised over $300,000. Oh, um, and I cried about a dozen <laughs> times. I just kept like waking up or getting home from a work shift and like seeing where it was at and just crying. Um, And I made a Discord server for all of the designers to be in if they so chose. Um, And occasionally, like, if they knew that I was a sleeper at work, they would, like, take a screenshot for me of a milestone and at me in the server so that I'd have a screenshot of it um, to post when I got on to update the thing again. Um, And then at the end of it, so after the whole month, we ended up raising about $406,000 to split between the two charities. 
And I want to talk about the two, two charities in a moment, but yeah. first, let's <laughs> stick with the game portion. Now, me, I am admittedly not a tabletop <laughs> role-playing gamer, uh, so <laughs> can you inform me, at least, uh, the novice at best, uh, the novice, like, what, what kind of games and what kind of roles uh, should we expect, particularly in your game, one of the 493 in the bundle? <laughs> yeah, so... Um, it's kind of a very wide variety of uh, systems and supplements. Uh, so uh, a basic thing of like tabletop games is that they tend to have dice rolls and not all of them do. Um, and they can kind of vary in scope from games that you play by yourself all the way up to games that you play with eight to ten people. If like you're running a huge D&D game or something like that. Um, but the games in the bundle range from a lot of, uh, solo journaling games, like those games that you play by yourself that are like very introspective and like you spend a lot of time like getting to know a single character or sometimes getting to know yourself through a tabletop game. Mm. Um, and uh, I'd say about 10% of the games in there probably fall into that category. Um, and then there's also a lot of games that are, uh, supplement material for existing systems. So a lot of folks donated their like homebrew subclasses or homebrew adventures for D&D or Pathfinder, um, things for Monster of the Week, things for Monster Hearts, things for Masks, uh, stuff. Um, Wander Home itself, which is a pastoral fantasy game by J-Dragon, and then also some independent content for Wander Home. Um, and then uh, on the far end of the scale are like full systems and full system mm -hmm. books. Uh, so like the biggest... Uh, ticket item, so to speak, in the bundle um, is Thirsty Sword Lesbians, which is uh, <laughs> published by Evil Hat, which is the same company that makes Monster of the Week and Blades in the Dark. Um, and that book normally like retails digitally for like fifteen to twenty dollars. Um, so the bundle being priced at five at the lowest tier, getting access to that like paid for itself essentially. Um, and they're all very different games. <laughs> um, there's kind of, it's kind of like a, there's something for everyone in a bundle this size because of the sheer amount of like variety. Uh, my game that's in there, uh, is called, I want your bite. And it is essentially the bachelor, but if the bachelor were a vampire, <laughs> um, and all of the classes or character options are, uh, um, like TV show trope characters. <laughs> so like one person is the villain and one person is like the hometown sweetheart. Um, all those characters that like you see in reality TV where you know that the producers have like told them what they're going to be when they get on set. <laughs> um, and so you play as one of those characters um, doing a bunch of like really silly competitions to try to win the vampire's affections like you're on The Bachelor. As a avid bachelor fan and D, D nerd i cannot express how much i want to play this game i can send you the link to the game itself later if you'd like so actually this is a good time to remind listeners if you want to learn more uh we just tweeted everything out on our inspiration dissemination twitter feed which is at kbvrid and of course our blog in case you missed it is blogs at oregonstate.edu slash inspiration and at the top of the blog you can find uh, our, our blog post uh, titled In the Face of National Anti-Trans Legislation, Local Game Developer and OSU Graduate Raises Over 400000 for Trans Advocacy Groups. This might be a good time to transition to the advocacy, advocacy groups that um, that all of these proceeds are going towards. So tell us about the two. Uh, yeah, so I chose uh, OLTT, which is the Organización Latina de Trans and Tejas, 
and then uh, the Transgender Education Network of Texas, uh, which is TENT. I'm going to use their shortened forms so that I don't have to keep saying the names <laughs> over and over. Um, so uh, TENT is a uh, educational group that works all the way from like a community and town level up through corporate and legislative levels, doing workshops and seminars to combat disinformation about trans identity and trans existence, essentially. Um, they do a lot of work with corporations on how to make your workspace a safe space for trans folks and how to welcome and celebrate the trans folks that are a part of your staff. Um, they've done full presentations for the Texas legislature to sort of like try to combat the current um, legislation that's happening and sort of disprove a lot of the uh, myths and conspiracy theories around trans identity. Um, and they also work like like on a very small level with like public schools and like community centers just offering um, like workshops for trans folks, workshops for parents of trans folks, especially if those parents mm -hmm. are if those parents are parents of children who are trans and how to support your trans kids, that sort of thing. Um, and then during the pandemic, they also opened up a program for uh, like emergency relief grants for trans folks. Um, so it's sort of like a no questions asked program for trans folks in Texas. They can apply for a relief grant and get the money and not have to worry about whatever is currently on their plate with being marginalized during a pandemic. Mm. Um, and the other one, OLTT, uh, is a Latina run and founded organization um, that focuses on the safety and security of trans immigrants in Texas. Um, so they were founded by Latina trans women, but they do serve the entire trans community um, with, a, with a special focus on immigrants and uh, trans people of color. And they run shelters in a variety of cities in Texas um, for homeless trans folks, uh, as well as uh, trans folks working their way through the immigration system and have lawyers on staff at these shelters to help with name change paperwork and immigration paperwork which uh, having only had to fill out one of those myself, I can't imagine how difficult it is to have to navigate both processes at once. Talk about hurdles. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they, uh, and all of that is free of charge to the trans folks yeah. that are there. It's funded through the charity and uh, a lot of pro bono work on the work on the behalf of the legal aid lawyers that they work with. Um, and so uh, I chose those two um, on personal recommendation. Uh, I, when I was making the bundle, um, a lot of larger media outlets were suggesting Equality Texas as a charity to donate to, and they do amazing work. Um, they're very uh, legislatively focused on getting queer positive and queer supportive legislation through the Texas legislature and killing bills like um, killing anti-trans bills and anti-queer bills in general. Um, but I wanted, uh, A, they were getting a lot of press already, so mm -hmm. I didn't feel as if they needed as much. And I wanted the money to go directly into the hands of trans people and know that it was helping them directly in the face of this um, this current situation. So I made a like call post on Twitter that was like, hey, I want to hear from trans folks in Texas. Mm -hmm. If you need something, what is the first organization you think to go to? Um, and the two most highly recommended were these. And it seems really important that both of these organizations are trans-led, yep. right? So it's it's really trans people helping trans people, which is, I think, really amazing and important. 
Because the, the, the saying always goes, and it's it's awesome that you reached out directly to trans people in Texas, right? Because the idea is you don't want to be the, the, the helicopter savior, right? You want to ask, what do you people on the ground mm-hmm. need? And the, the people that can best fit those needs are those that are probably have already faced those same hurdles and barriers before. So they they know what to expect moving forward through this process. Um, to, to, put, to put a real, uh, to, to sharpen your point um, in... Uh, to sharpen your point that the number of trans bills coming through have just risen very quickly. Um, in 2018, there were 41 anti-trans bills. Uh, and in the first three months of this year, 2022, there were 238. Mm. Again, 41 in 2018 and 238 just in the first three months. And that is despite nearly 8 in 10 Americans supporting laws that protect LGBTQ people from discrimination in jobs, housing, public accommodations. Uh, and this is from a public religion public religion research survey released in mid-April. Both of those can be found on the blog. Um, So this really quick, extremely quick level of, um, and it's not just Texas, right? It's also Florida. Uh, Do you have a couple others, Rue, that Uh, come off the top of your head? I know in Utah and Idaho, there are a couple on the docket. I don't know if they've been passed or if they're just on the list of things. Um, Missouri, I believe, Put one through recently. I think it went through either the House or the Senate so far. Yeah, one of the two. Yeah. Kansas, Arizona, Indiana, Kentucky are some others that I have on on the list as well. Um, so uh, this is this is just kind of the beginning, and and Texas is probably the the first and worst in this case because they have really, whew, my goodness. Um, so you also mentioned I want to go back to to something. You mentioned that there is both a social and medical transition, and Texas has gone wicked crazy because they are um, uh, they are allowing anybody to report even a social transition as a type of child abuse, which a social transition, do you want to let us know more about that and the distinction between the two? Yeah, so social transitioning is just... Uh, going to expressing yourself as the gender you identify with. So uh, social transition doesn't require any medical treatment, doesn't require going to a therapist or a doctor for HRT, doesn't require any sort of surgery. It's just uh, like in my personal case, uh, I'm, uh, I was assigned female at birth. Uh, so it was the point at which in my life I was like, hey, I'm not a woman. Please refer to me as non-binary. Um, please refer to me as a man. Um, I am both. It is a lot of complex gender. Uh, <laughs> and please use they or he pronouns instead of she pronouns for me. Um, and the social transition would be the people in my social circle doing that and accepting that and my parents accepting me and my friends accepting me and teachers that I what felt comfortable enough to come out to accepting me. Those are all um, parts of socially transitioning and like living as the gender that you identify with, um, which is all some people do. Some people are comfortable enough in their body that they just need the social reinforcement of their gender. Some people experience enough gender dysphoria to need medical transition, um, which comes in a variety of forms. For some people, medical transition is surgical, whether it be... um, facial feminization surgery or top surgery or any number of other procedures. For some people, it's just going on a hormone replacement therapy or on hormone blockers for folks who are who don't want to experience puberty of any kind. 
Um, and for some people, it's even just getting the sort of like certification from their doctor. Like, yes, this person is trans and has gender dysphoria. They can like they should be allowed to legally transition their gender, which some states require different levels of like medical approval for that than others. Um, and the difference is that medical transition is what most places um, that are currently putting bills through are trying to stop. They're trying to stop people being able to access HRT, people being able to access gender reaffirming surgery, um, which is very bad and very damaging to trans folks. But what Texas is doing in also outlawing social transition is even more so because even in the safety of your own home and the safety of your friend groups where you're not doing anything, you're not going out of your way to like medically transition, you're not you're not doing anything that would possibly be seen as harmful. Transitioning isn't harmful, but there will always be people who frame it that way. All you're asking is for society to make an effort to support you and accept you. And Texas has decided that, that is too much for trans people to ask. And that's really upsetting. <laughs> and I, I want to preface my next comment with if, if you're listening, um, this this is a content warning that this uh, discussion will contain mentions of suicide. So if this is um, not something you want to listen to, maybe turn the radio off <laughs> or skip minutes. ahead in the podcast if you're listening. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, this this kind of ban and classifying even social transition transitioning as child abuse has, I mean, horrific, horrific consequences. Um, we linked this in the blog, but a, a survey by the Trevor Project found that 42% of LGBTQ youth have seriously considered suicide within the past year alone. Over half of transgender and non-binary youth have considered suicide. However, we know that having at least one supportive adult can drastically reduce those those rates for, for LGBTQ youth. And so to have an entire state saying you are not allowed to support your tra transgender children. I mean, I just, I don't even think I have <laughs> the words really to say just how, how terrified that makes me. Yeah, me too. There was um, a two-part series podcast from the New York Times Daily this week. And in the second part, uh, they, they described a mother and her transgender child where the transgender child was already going through uh, um, I, I believe they, they got a cut on their elbow or something and they were worried it was going to get infected. So they were going to go to the hospital, but they realized the hospital has a whole bunch of mandatory reporters mm -hmm. for child abuse, right? Child abuse in air quotes in this yeah. case. Um, and they were really concerned of, do I go and take my child to look for a, Doctor? you know, a, a, a regular infection just to make sure it's fine. But also, what happens if if the doctor that I happen to see is is really in favor of this legislation? Like, am I going to get my child taken away at a really crucial time when they are, uh, in their case, in in a, in a medical transition? So, uh, it, this is, I mean, the amount of angst that has to be going on specifically in Texas, but then also across all of these other, I mean, let's be honest, mostly Republican-led states, um, but it has reverberations across the rest of the country because. It, you know, just because we're in a different state line doesn't mean that it doesn't affect us mm -hmm. personally, right? Yeah, and uh, it's something that we talked about uh, in our pre-interview. Yeah. Um, the, like, 
pushing of anti-trans bills um, and like anti-LGBTQ in general bills like the one in Florida um, is like public permission for people who are transphobic or like LGBTQ phobic in their private life to do that more loudly and proudly. Um, and so even in states where there is not legislation being like being taken out against trans and queer folks, seeing these successes in huge quotation marks um, <laughs> of anti-trans legislation in other states gives those individuals who would otherwise be quiet about their bigotry permission to be loud um, and to use those other examples as precedent for putting things forward in their own spaces. Um, and I think it's reasonable for like trans folks, no matter where they are, to feel scared of mm. that sort of thing. And especially when you have these huge public figures, such as J.K. Rowling, yep, <laughs> being um, very visible and able and tweeting about, you know, just blatantly wrong and extremely transphobic and harmful uh, ideas, and and those kind of getting perpetuated, and and as we. See, making making those sentiments making their way into the legislature, um, just you know, people say, "Oh, it's just words; it's freedom of speech." But but we're seeing the real time consequences of of those sentiments. Hmm. So I want to transition a, a little bit over to or and and return back to the game because I read in one of the pieces that that Grace had linked in in our blog that. One of the huge benefits of role-playing games in particular is that you get to be in the space with, with your friends and your colleagues, right? But you also get to be yourself with the character that, um, that again, I'm the novice tabletop role-playing <laughs> game, so like you can explain this better than I can. But the, the idea being that you, know, you can actually be yourself in, in this character and express who you want to be. In, Explore in, in, identities. Yes, exactly. Explore identity. So um, tell us how maybe role playing games in general might might help just a little bit. Yeah, um, I I've talked about this a lot with like different outlets that I've interviewed with for this um, as a trans person. So often our stories are not told by trans people. Um, either we are villains in a cis person's story or even well-meaning cis people who make documentaries about our trans activists or who include trans folks in shows and books and whatnot don't tell our stories. They tell what they think our stories are through a cis lens. Um, and we don't very often get the opportunity to, with our full authentic selves, tell our own stories. And so a lot of trans stories in media end up being about trans suffering because that's what sells in media and what a lot of people who aren't necessarily a part of the community think of when they think of trans people. They think, oh, they are under so much oppression, their lives must be miserable all the time. Um, and that can get really like exhausting to like every time there's a trans character in a TV show be like, okay. How long before they get called a slur or shoved into something? Um, and tabletop role-playing games, because they're collaborative storytelling, you as a player or the GM or whatever structure your game is have a stake and a say in everything that happens. Um, and so getting to, as a trans person, as a person of color, bring that 
like bring my own stories to the table and know that they're going to be treated with respect and always centered and like given the time and joy that they deserve and that I can tell stories about being trans and being happy and stories about characters who are trans that don't revolve around being trans, but revolve around everything else that we do in our lives um, is super freeing. And also it gives folks a lot of space to explore identities, even like folks who might not consider themselves trans or queer, like getting to play a character of an identity that isn't yours gives you a lot of perspective on how they live their lives or maybe might make you think like, hey, I'm enjoying playing this character who's non-binary and it feels very like positive to be referred to in that way. I wonder if I would also appreciate feeling that way in my regular life. Maybe I'll test it out, um, that sort of thing. And it's just very nice to have like a space that you know you are safe to explore and tell the stories that you want to tell. This might be a good time to ask what maybe some of your favorite games <laughs> tabletop role-playing games or or otherwise uh well presently my favorite video game is the pokemon legends rcs game that came out uh i have devoted too many hours to it um because there's lots of clothing options that you can buy uh, and any game that lets me dress my character in increasingly strange outfits is going to be the game that i play for the next eight years um, but tabletop game-wise, um, I'm super fond of uh, systems that fall under the umbrella of Powered by the Apocalypse. Um, my favorite is Monster Hearts, um, but Apocalypse systems essentially are character-driven and character-focused, so the game master in those systems is mostly there to set up a scenario for the players and then be their cheerleader through it, as opposed to like putting obstacles in their way and like being on a... like being the chief storyteller. Um, and I really enjoy systems like that because I feel like they give players a lot more agency um, and also like take a lot of the stress off of the game master. Uh, I'm uh, what's called a forever GM. I prefer <laughs> GMing to playing. Um, and systems like Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder put a lot of onus on the game master to have answers for every question and be prepared for everything. Um, and it can be a little stressful sometimes. Uh, so... Systems that are powered by the apocalypse give a lot more agency to players and also a lot more breathing space for you as a GM to be like, yeah, I don't know what does happen when you decide to drive your car the wrong way on the freeway. Why don't you tell me about that? <laughs> How do you think it's going to go? So I, I like games that have a little bit more of that back and forth with the um, with the GM. Going going backwards a little bit here, back to your uh to your fundraiser so you actually um during the last week of oh, that the yeah. bundle was live had a streamathon. yeah Wanna talk about that <laughs> yeah so um in my free time uh i do tabletop actual play streaming um think like critical role but way smaller because i'm not critical role um <laughs> <laughs> which is critical role is a massively popular live streamed D campaign yeah for those who don't know <laughs> like me <laughs> yeah uh, essentially uh it's players uh, meeting either in person at a recording studio or virtually via zoom um, and playing their game live on twitch for other folks to watch um and it's very fun i really like it um and i have a lot of like colleagues in the industry that also do it um a lot of folks who were um, either involved in me making the bundle or who were supportive of the bundle when it went live. Um, and so I was thinking, um, hey, 
why not for the last week of the bundle as like a fundraising push, we can do a streamathon. different channels can partner and we can all play games to showcase what's in the bundle. Um, so I reached out to the producers of about 10 tabletop channels that I know. Um, and we worked out a schedule and worked out casting and got streams. I think we ended up having like 15 or 16 streams during the wow. last week of the bundle on a variety of channels at a variety of times so that folks across time zones could experience them. Um, and we pl- we obviously couldn't showcase all the games because there are 493. <laughs> um, but between the streams and uh, a couple of podcasts that did some feature episodes of games, I think we got to showcase like 20 or so of the like bigger games in the bundle. Cool, cool. I ran a Thirsty Sword Lesbians game. It was very fun. (laughs) That's awesome. And did you do that with um, people locally or did you do that virtually? Uh, I I did that virtually. Um, Almost all of ours were virtual. There was, well, I mean, they were all virtual and they were all on Twitch. Mm. Um, But only one of our production companies has like, that I partnered with has like a studio space Mm. where they do their recording. Uh, Doing a tabletop stream in a studio space is like a super high production value endeavor because you need cameras that face all the players. Yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) So if if you have the money to buy six individual cameras to face your DM (laughs) and all the players, cool. (laughs) The um, Orange Media Network actually several years ago produced a... Um, D&D oh. game. A couple of them, actually. I know because my partner was the GM for them. That's so <laughs> but, cool. Um, yeah, there's a studio right in here that they use uh, on this floor. Um, yeah, so, okay. So you had these these uh, channels streaming all of these games. That is so cool. And kind of speaking of Critical Role, I did see that um, the dungeon master for that, Matthew Mercer, who's also a um, very uh, uh, popular voice actor, did retweet... <laughs> Yeah. Something about you. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was it was very uh, like it was very um, overwhelming in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Um, the amount of like community and industry support that the bundle got, like um, not only being retweeted by Matt Mercer and Brennan Lee Mulligan, who mm-hmm. is the GM for College Humor's uh, Dimension Twenty series, um, but also just a lot of like publication companies, like um, Onyx Path, who publishes. Um, the Vampire the Masquerade games and Evil Hat, who publishes, like I said, Thirsty Horde Lesbians and a bunch of others, um, as well as the companies that partnered with us. Like the the sheer amount of like both personal support from individuals in the tabletop community and like professional support from big industry names um, definitely helped us get as much traction and support as we were able to get. And it made me really, really happy every time, <laughs> and even though my Twitter notifications were broken for a month. <laughs> So um, what was kind of the response that you got after this, or I guess during during the campaign, but also after it ended? I mean, you were featured by a ton of different news outlets. Yeah. Um, also overwhelming. <laughs> uh, I consider myself kind of not necessarily the world's most outgoing person. Uh, so being like interviewed by so many different news outlets that by people I didn't know in any way was like very much like a shock for me, um, especially being interviewed by NBC for uh, as one of their trans uh, trans day of awareness or uh. trans, trans day of visibility like feature pieces, um, which got put on their social media pages to a combined like 27 million <gasps> followers wow uh that's too many people for me to think about um as a as a concept 
Uh, but yeah, um, very overwhelming, but like very exciting, I guess, uh, to get to talk about um, not only like the work that everyone who helped with this bundle put in, but also that the work that these charities are doing um, and also just to get to talk and remind folks that there are people who care. Because I think another huge thing, especially for me as a trans person, is that things like this terrify me on a policy level, um, but also on a personal level if no one is there to stop them. Um, and so seeing the amount of like support from a ver- like the variety of outlets that wanted to feature this and wanted to talk to me and wanted to get involved was like a very nice reminder of, okay... There are people who care, though, and there are people who are willing to go out of their way to do something to help. And that, like, really solidified my care for the human condition, I think. (laughs) So going back to to the bundle, right, Mm -hmm. um, what's the status of the bundle right now? Uh, It's finished. So it finished on April 4th. Dates are hard. Um, and, uh, it takes, uh, so once the bundle finished, um, I've been in talks with both charities along with the like team at itch, um, cause they have to get a bunch of financial stuff, uh, figured out on the back mm. end. Um, and itch takes about two to three weeks to process all of those donations. Um, so they just like this past Friday, their back end computer system finally finished processing everything. Mm. Um, it also accounts for if folks like, Charge it on a credit card. It has to wait until that credit card bill goes through and things like that. Um, and if anything like goes wrong, so that that way they're not forwarding along money that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that all of the payments have processed and things like that, um, itch from the back end has set up profiles for both charities, um, and essentially is just going to take the money that's currently existing in like a nebulous pool of space. I don't quite understand how. It works from a technical standpoint (laughs) Um, and then equally split that between the two. And itch normally takes a cut from um, creators when we sell our products on there for independent purposes. But for charity, um, itch uh, like hand waves their cut. So the like 10 percent fee or so that would normally get taken by itch, they don't take for charity projects. Um, So PayPal and Stripe still take their like processing fees. Mm. But it's an like it's a huge percentage to not be taking from folks on itches end, which I really appreciate. And I think you mentioned in our pre-interview that for OLTT, it's the biggest donation they've ever received. Yeah. Um, so uh, a lot of uh, like a lot of money this large because uh, it'll, it'll end up being after fees. I think a little bit less than two hundred thousand per each charity because of like card fees and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but that kind of money for a charity, especially a small and kind of niche charity like OLTT, is normally the kind of money they'd have to spend months applying for a governmental grant for. Um, and the last time they got a large sum of money, which was closer to like a hundred thousand, it was through one of like through a grant program. Um, so to be given about two hundred thousand dollars, having not had to put in any like person work hours to get that money or have any like strings attached because grants always have something attached to them Mm. Um, to just have like a couple hundred grand that they can do whatever they want with now is like life changing for those kinds of charities, especially because they run shelters. So um, 
Ana Andrea Molina, who is the um, the founder and uh, president of the foundation, um, and myself and my partner were talking. My partner was helping by translating because uh, Ana Andrea's first language is Spanish, and I don't speak Spanish particularly well. <laughs> um, we're talking about how um, like they've been putting off renovations to their shelters because it's expensive, um, but with money like this, they don't have to like that is above and beyond their budget um they're going to be able to like do a bunch bunch, much needed much (laughs) needed renovations and expansions for a couple of their shelters wow that's amazing that is amazing (laughs) that's gotta like uh, that gives me chills (laughs) (laughs) yeah sometimes when i'm having a bad day i just think about that yeah like this is a direct result of of your actions one person can make a difference one person can make a difference. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to paraphrase it because I'm not going to remember it exactly. Um, but one of my favorite quotes and one that I like kind of live by is, uh, there's an Anne Frank quote that is something along the lines of, uh, "Isn't it wonderful how no, you don't have to like no one person has to wait for anything to change the world," mm. um, and that's sort of like, very much a life philosophy that I aspire to, like. Anyone can do something if they just stop waiting for someone else to do it, I guess. Love that. Snapping in the background. Yeah. We'll see if the bikes can pick it up. Oh, it does. Love it. Popping. (laughs) Okay, so I think we want to end with traditions. Yes, and actually that was a great segue because um, one of our traditions is to ask for a piece of advice. Uh, So who wants your advice and who is it for? I wanted to ask if I could do two separate ones. Oh, absolutely. Is that okay? Yes. Um, first off, uh, I want to give advice to cis folks and allies, but generally all cis folks. Um, this is a time when we really need your voice. Um, obviously, don't talk for us and don't talk over us, but this is a time when your voices mean something because you can talk to your cis friends who don't understand this and explain it from a perspective that they will understand. Um, And you can talk to folks and you can speak up with us and make sure that everyone knows what's happening. Um, And the more voices at the table, the louder we are. Um, So if you have the time and energy, something from the scale of at the high end, writing testimony to legislatures and states to states and representatives that you are uh, constituent to all the way down to the low end of if you know someone's pronouns and someone uses the incorrect one quietly and cordially correcting them and making sure that person feels safe and supported in that moment and everything in between, like every little bit of your support means the world to us right now. Um, And then my other piece of advice is for trans people. And I want you all to know that your lives and your stories mean something and they matter. And no matter how many people presently or in the past or in the future want to silence those stories, your voice and your life is important and everything that you do means something and no one can take that away from you. So just know that no matter what anyone says, no matter how powerful they are, your life has meaning and the world is not as bright without you in it. So please keep telling your stories. Beautiful. And to outro you, 
You had picked a song. What song did you choose and why? Uh, I chose The Show Must Go On by Queen. Um, it's the last song that Freddie Mercury recorded with Queen um, before passing away. And uh, on top of that being a huge, uh, like, reminder of the fact that this is not the first time the queer community has been so persecuted and under attack, um, but also the lyrics in it really, like, resonate with me. Um, and the fact that when everything is, like, everything is going wrong and everything is happening, we're still pushing through. And as long as there are still people who are fighting and people who are living and people who are experiencing joy, we haven't lost. All right. Well, with that, Rue, thank you so much for joining us here tonight. Thank you for having me. We're really excited that we got to sit down and, and talk to you in uh, here in Corvallis. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, have a great night, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Haman. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends.